Today's episode of the Old Souls Football Podcast, we're going over one of the greatest to ever do it. That's Vince Lombardi, legendary coach of the Packers in the 1960s. Goes to the Redskins. A lot of what-ifs for his 1969 season. Neil and I dive in next. 1969. Neil Armstrong becomes the first man to step foot on the surface of the moon. That was actually kind of the first like live TV event. Yes, I suppose. Like the first, except I guess maybe the Kennedy era. Of course, I, he wasn't assassinated on live TV, but the immediate reaction, like the Walter Cronkite stuff. Yeah, like people tuned into that and there was like breaking news and all of that. But I think like it was the first like live TV event where people predetermined programming. Yes. It was it was appointment television is kind of a preview for where the NFL is headed in 1969 kind of gives you a, a picture of where we are in time. Some other events from 1969, uh, Gaddafi rises to power in Libya. Ho Chi Minh actually dies while the Vietnam war rages on, uh, in the South Pacific, I guess not the South Pacific, but Southeast Asia. Was and that the year of the My Lai massacre 1969 or was that 68? Honestly, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I didn't look that up. I just was looking for some stats on 1969, but you could be right. But obviously, we're in the middle of the Vietnam War, which is a huge talking point. Politics are kind of changing in the United States as well. People's approach uh, and, and philosophies on everything, not just politics, but coaching. Life uh, in general. Life, sports, culture, everything. Everything's changing. And uh, 1969 and really the 1960s are kind of that turning point. Uh, but going back to football, the AFL has a massive victory that January as the Jets beat the Colts in Super Bowl three. That became one I of the guess. most influential. That became one of the most influential events and in what led to that merger in 1970. Yeah. It was the catalyst, truly, probably for it. It was when the NFL realized. Um, though they didn't want to admit it. Um, okay, well, the AFL is getting some good players. Maybe we went, we want in on some of that. Yeah. And, and I've thought about this before, but what happens if the Colts do what they were expected to do and roll and, them? And roll them. Let's say Shula and Earl Morrill and the Colts come into Miami and beat the Jets by 20. They were 19 and a half point favorites, I believe. So and I think that's the biggest spread in Super Bowl history. If that's three straight Super Bowls where the Packers destroy the Chiefs by 25, and then they mm -hmm. beat the Raiders 33 to 14, and the following year the Colts blow out the Jets, is there a merger the way we saw it? Or is it more of a, you know, is it more of a, they absorb the best AFL teams? And there's that, like, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I was thinking. Like maybe a team like the Jets, you know, they kind of dissolve and the giants like retake over being the big brother. Um, yeah. Because there was a time there that the jets had the upper hand for a good 15, 20 years until, until the giants did eventually come up in the mid eighties. Um, but I'd say, yeah, they probably you would think like maybe they take Kansas city and the Raiders and uh, yeah, who, who knows? That's a great question. Yeah, I think that was a, that was a really big turning point. We could probably do an episode just on Super Bowl three. Yeah, uh, but like a couple other notes on that game. The quarterback actually for the Colts wasn't Unitas, who was kind of the quarterback of the decade. 
really the 50s and the 60s. He led Baltimore to a Earl Morrill, excuse me, led Baltimore to a 13 and one season. He won MVP that year and he was a, a backup for the defending MVP, Johnny Unitas. So if Baltimore yeah. wins that Super Bowl, I mean, you got to keep Morrill, right? Yeah. You got to oh, keep gosh, him yeah. starting, but they didn't do and, that. And in fact, Earl Morrill might be in the, the Hall of Fame. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think about it? I mean, he had, because don't forget, he was also the main starting quarterback for the 1972 Dolphins because Bob Greasy went down like the third game of that season and he had to come to the rescue and, and take them the rest of the way. Yeah. And, you know, I, you, you spoke about Miami, but I mean, does John Shula, does he even go to Miami if they stick yeah. with Moral? Because they, United was kind of at the end of his career at that point anyway. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, my thoughts, like that game really kind of set the stage for the 1970s. But really the thing that set the stage the most from the transition to from the 60s to the 1970s was when Vince Lombardi leaves Green Bay and becomes head coach and general manager of the Redskins. Yeah. Because Lombardi, he was kind of the figurehead, like the number one face of pro football in the 60s. And rightfully so. He had quite the resume. To kind of go into Lombardi's background, he was uh, one of the seven blocks of granite at Fordham, which I believe was, I guess, created by Grantland Rice. So back oh. then, in like the 1930s, if you were like one of the four horsemen at Notre Dame, that was a Grantland Rice piece. Like if you were kind of coined, if you if you oh. became kind oh, of... Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, if you became a figurehead of Grantland Rice, like Lombardi was famous as a player, is what I'm saying. Okay. It wasn't wow. He wasn't just a pro football coach figurehead. Like this guy was a, a bona fide stud as yeah. a player. But back then, like pro football was nowhere near it is now. Like, you know, yeah, the college game ruled the the real honestly the first 75 to 100 years of American football in this country. Yeah. Well, and back then, like the you know, the number one role, I mean, the number one players in the country, like as high school recruits, were going to the service academies because yeah, yeah, you know, the culture back then and you know, pro football and like that wasn't really a career. You know, the best line these guys could go, you know, career path, I guess these guys could follow was joining the military. So a lot yeah. of them would go to the army and like West Point was dominant in those days. And I, you know, I honestly I, that's how like the likes of Notre Dame rose to power because the uh, even though ironically um, Lombardi himself was a Catholic, but a lot of the Catholic kids weren't getting into the big WASP universities, um, yeah. whether they were military academies or just like Ivy League schools. So they were going to Notre Dame and like they were hoarding all like the great Catholic talent in like the New England area and the Chicago yeah. area, Philadelphia. Yeah. And, and Lombardi had the Catholic thing almost working against him. And he always also, you know, he was famous for always saying that he didn't think he got a, a really a head coaching opportunity until later in his life, which mid forties back then, that was pretty late in life yeah. for a, a football opportunity, like what he got with the Packers. And he blamed it a lot on his Italian heritage. Yeah. And that I think he was quoted as saying like his last name ended with a vowel. And that was why he wasn't getting opportunities 
you know, in the early 1950s or even the mid 1950s. And it took him so much success with West Point and with the Giants. Uh, But speaking of West Point, uh, about 10 years after his playing days in, he ends up kind of linking up with Colonel Red Blake. You know, if if you want to understand college football, you got to read up on these Army teams from the 1930s and 40s. Um, You know, Heisman Trophy winners, national champions, uh, in the forties. And it kind of gives you a complete cultural perspective on where we were as a country at that point, like we just talked about where the, the academies and the, these Ivy league schools, they're getting the best players. We kind of hit a turning point later on, but Lombardi, when he got that job at West point, they, that was a, that was a great gig. That's like getting in today's world. That's like getting an offensive coordinator job in the sec. Yeah. Um, so anyway, he goes to West Point. He's part of that, you know, uh, you know, he's part of that. And then after five years at West Point, he leaves uh, to become what basically was the uh, offensive coordinator job with the Giants under head coach Jim Lee Howell. So this coaching staff that he joins, by the way, like I, I just want to ask this question. Is this the best like offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator tandem of all time? Yeah. Your offensive coordinator is Vince Lombardi. Your defensive coordinator is Tom Landry. <laughs> I mean, that's as good as it gets there. Uh, do you know what's kind of funny about that? Just thinking about it. Isn't it hilarious? Now, the Giants, they, they have, you know, nobody should feel sympathetic for them at all because they have four Super, Bowl, Super Bowls of their own. Yeah. But isn't it funny that the Giants... It might have had some of the best coordinators in NFL history, and they yeah. all left to have success elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, Bill Belichick. More success than they had in New York. I mean, don't forget John Fox. John oh. Skins. <laughs> and sh- hey, Sean Payton was uh, the offensive yeah. coordinator for those teams, yeah. too. Well, I, I mean, I, I make that John Fox joke, but he was actually a pretty good coach. He did get a team to the Super Bowl. So. Steve Spagnuolo is about to win his third Super Bowl. Well, he might. Yeah, and, and, and Sp- was... Spags was a it has always been like a great coordinator. Yeah, not a great head, not coach. A head coach. Yeah, he was with the Rams as a head coach, right? If I want to say he was. Yeah, but that I mean, I think you know, talking about coaching success though, if you don't have the quarterback, no, I don't. It doesn't matter. Like we just saw that with Belichick. You know, you you have a quarterback go out there and turn it over. Every other every other series, you'll never win. Yeah, and, I mean, and it's 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 really an unfortunate price that great coaches have to pay. Um, like I think we mentioned last week on the show that Joe Gibbs, when we were talking about Drew Brees, um, Joe Gibbs is really the only coach that consistently won with like middle tier quarterbacks his entire career. Um, yeah. It's it's not easy, and and you know. Today's world of, uh, you know, big flashy stats and highlights, you know, the coaches can't get on the field and, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to fault them when their players suck. And, and yet, you know, they, they do play a part in that um, for, in terms of, you know, how those players were acquired, if they had a say in it or um, in how they were developed or anything like that. But yeah, no, I, I totally agree. It's, it's, you know, you it's a quarterback's game and the head coach unfortunately falls victim to that more than the yeah. quarterback does, I think. Yeah, for sure. 
But going back to the Giants, offensive coordinator, Vince Lombardi. Defensive coordinator, Tom Landry. That's a combined. Let me look here. Sorry, I had it written down. That's a combined seven league championships between yeah. two coordinators on that team who all wanted somewhere else. And, and four of the first 10 Super Bowls, 11 Super Bowls. Yep. Oh. And they return, uh, they win the 1956 NFL championship, and then they return to the championship game in 1958. The Bears. Yep. Uh, yep. They, yeah, I think that was, Bears were 56. And then in 1958, they beat the Colts, or they lose to the Colts, excuse me, yeah. in what is known as the greatest game ever played. Uh, yeah. That was the first sudden death overtime game in, in league history. Um. And you could even argue for the NFL, that was kind of the turning point where they, this sport became the number one sport in America and not baseball. Yeah. Because I think people realized the excitement and it was like appointment television that you had to tune in. Like every, every down you watch felt important where baseball doesn't necessarily have that pace, you know, yeah. in, a, in a June setting, right? Could you imagine, you know, we had somebody on that followed us on one of our uh, non-porn bot followers on Twitter. Yes. That had, it was a great question. Uh, and I've honestly never thought about it before, but they said, what would be a game you would have loved to have gone back and watched um, in, in real time? And I, me and you both picked games that the Bears and Packers played in. Yeah. But that 58 championship game, not maybe to, well, you know, obviously to be at the polo grounds to see it, but or was the poll? Was it Yankee? Second? I think it was Yankee Stadium. Oh, maybe it was because that's where the Giants yeah. played. Was Yankee Stadium? But it might have even been better to be sitting in a living room in Chicago, Illinois, or you know South Carolina, and and watching that and and feeling the energy of like you know because people knew how football was played, but they never saw it played that good at that level, you know. And and that I mean that would have been. You know, that might be my answer to that question now. That that would have been an amazing moment to see that. Yeah, and I mean, because that was right where the game started being telecast on television. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, the, the precursor to the question was, like, games that you couldn't see. So that's why I chose a game from the 30s, because, like, yeah, television really wasn't a thing yet. Mm -hmm. But I agree with you. I would love to go back in time. It, to be in person for the first sudden death game in history. Yeah. Uh, Lombardi ends up finally landing a coaching gig and it, you know, it took him till age 45. And there was a lot of, you know, speculation on why it took so long. Lombardi, I think kind of quoted that or was quoted as saying that it was because he was Italian, you know, his last name ended with a vowel some of it, I think, was his temperament, and some of it was, I think, the expectations he had in terms of what he wanted. I think he chose the perfect spot for him in Green Bay. So in 1958, Philly actually had an opening, but the ownership group in Philadelphia was like split among like dozens of different businessmen in the area, and they were never going to give up full control. Right? There's too many cooks in the kitchen per se right and this is you know football is not an industry at this point right it's it's still a bunch of local car dealers essentially pulling together their money and they want to run a football team kind of like you know the local 
you know, American Legion or something, right? Yeah. It, it, it didn't work that way. It doesn't work that way now like it did in the 50s. I think Lombardi wanted to go in and really control the process because he wanted to create his own culture, his own environment, right? And really the only job that you could get that control was a team that was complete dog crap. That was the Green Bay Packers of the 1950s. Green Bay, I think, was so bad that Lombardi's wife, Marie, actually pleaded with Wellington Mara to enforce Lombardi's contract to keep him <laughs> in, to keep him on as an assistant. Remember, he would be the head coach and the GM, like give every football piece of football control he wanted in his career was in Green Bay. She did not want to go to Green Bay because, you know, location wise, if you're used to New York, think of the opposite is in Green Bay. Yeah. Farmlands. Um, and back Nothing. then, yeah, and back then, Lombardi had ever really known the New York area. Fordham, West Point, the Giants, they're all within yeah. driving distance. You know, an easy commute for somebody that grew up in the city. So he goes to the Packers, like I said, they're the, they're the worst team during the 1950s. No winning seasons throughout the entire decade. So you're talking like Cleveland Browns 2010s level incompetence. Oh. Like it's, it's a bad spot. And, you know, they only had one win in 1958. And that was actually over those Eagles that we just mentioned who only won two games. So this Packers teams, they're not getting a lot of results on the field, but despite those results, Packers actually drafted incredibly well in the 1950s. I was looking through their drafts and they're amazing. So they have this one scout on staff. So think about this for a second, too. Like in the 2000s, or I guess we're in the 20, the 2020s now, like NFL teams have probably a dozen scouts at least working, for, like regional scouts, and then you have like pro personnel people all the way up to the GM. Their front office is probably like at least 20, 30 people, yeah. right? They had one guy really picking the players. Jack, this is the fit. A jack of all trades. Yeah, Jack of all trades, Jack Venisi, head scout of the Packers pretty much throughout the entire 50s. Was the only guy on the staff, but he happened to draft seven Hall of Famers. Oh. Jesus. So, seven Hall of Famers. Holy and Christ. I can pull them up. I, I didn't write them all down, uh, but the greatest draft of all time is actually the 1958 class, I think where he drafted Jim Taylor in the second wait, round. Wait. Oh, go on, go on, go on. Finish, finish up. Ray Nitschke in round three. Okay. And Jerry Kramer round four. He went, he got three Hall of Famers in the, within, like I guess within three picks, or I guess within the first four picks of the 1958 draft. Like, think about trying to do that today. That's uh, like nearly uh, impossible. Congratulations, Jack Benizi. Um, no, and all Benizi, yeah. In all due respect, um, he that that is really great. I mean, that's unbelievable. However, the greatest draft of all time was definitely the nineteen seventy four Steelers. You know, like they drafted five Hall of Famers in one draft. 
And like he drafted three in the first four rounds. They drafted four in the first five rounds. They had Lynn Swan from USC. They had Jack Lambert, who was like a, a Mac linebacker, I think. They got John Stallworth. They got Mike Webster, who before he became a crazy man. Um, and then this is like back in the day when there was like 450 draft picks. So imagine being an undrafted free agent and making the Hall of Fame. Donnie Shell, he was a safety for the Steelers back in the seventies. I, I think the seven, you know, the 58, 59 Packers that might be up there. It was the 58 the, draft. The, and 58 funny enough, draft. the, the season they went one and 10 and one, 10 and one was the season they drafted three hall of famers in that, that, that year's draft, which shows like number one rookies really didn't matter back then. Oh, and then no. number two players didn't mean everything. It wasn't just about acquiring talent. You needed a coach. Yeah. And, uh, but I came away thinking this, like when I studied Venisi specifically in like the team he had built, I guess the roster he had built, there's really zero doubt to me that, uh, John, uh, Jack Venisi is one of the greatest talent evaluators of all time. Now you can obviously put him up yeah. there with some of the GMs from the seventies, like you said, but the Steelers, you know, the 49ers pro personnel people, you know, we talked about Bobby Beathard last, uh, last week. Yeah. This is a guy that died over 60 years ago and he's still yeah. not in the Hall of Fame. It's long overdue. It's and you know, and, and in fairness, um, like as you said, he did this on his own. He was doing this. Um, you know, even in the 70s, like there there was better ways of collecting data um on players, that, you know, obviously not the type of stuff we have nowadays, but um, uh, it was certainly easier, and they would have had a larger swath of 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 an army of guys, at least a few guys to go out and do yeah. the scouting him doing this on his own and, and getting three Hall of Famers. I mean, that quickly in, you know, one draft, it is pretty remarkable. Yeah. Cause I think so in, and, and that wasn't his only great draft. So in, in the 1958 Packers draft, I, I mentioned you had Jim Taylor round two, Ray Nitschke, round uh round three and jerry kramer round four like that that's a great draft by itself but i mean mm -hmm. you have guys like jim ringo that he drafted he drafted bart Starr with pick 199 i mean he's finding guys every single season i mean he drafted paul hornan like when you look at his resume there is zero doubt to me that that's a hall of fame resume. Yeah. And I think the issue that he ran into is I think he was just kind of forgotten in time because he dies right before the glory years of the sixties Packers. And I think, I think that's what ended up happening. Oh, he did really. Yeah. He died in How 1960. Oh, wow. He just died of, a, he died of a heart attack. So he, he never really saw you know, he, I, I, yeah, I think he even died before the, the 1960 championship. Wow. So he never even saw the team make a championship nonetheless, not even win one. So that was one of the tragedies is he dies, I think at like age 34. So he doesn't even see, like I said, he doesn't see all the players that he collected over the 1950s. He doesn't really even see them win. And so Lombardi, or go ahead. No, just related because the name Venisi, uh, Venisi, he it started making me think for a second. 
because the bears had an executive um, that worked for um, obviously in, in their front office, he was their GM and Jerry Vinici. It was, he was the youngest brother of, of Jack. Yeah. I th- so, and I think, and I, think I did, I did a little research on Jack cause the episode's not on Jack, but I believe he came from Chicago or came recommended he, he, from yeah, Dallas. He's from Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. So Wild. I think like Georgia and we'll get into George Hallis in a second, but like or later in the episode, but you talk about a rival coach doing a lot of favors to keep the team alive. I know he should have just mean, let them die. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be a happier I mean, man today. Yeah. Well, I mean, they would just be the Milwaukee Packers, but <laughs> yeah. yeah so, <laughs> but anyway, so despite all that great scouting in the 1950s, so we talk about Jack Vanisi, like hall of fame resume. The fact that he's not in right now is a joke. The Packers stunk in the fifties. Like I said, they won, you know, very few games, no winning seasons until Lombardi gets there in 59. Uh, Scooter McLean, the head coach in 58 was known as this nice guy, but not someone that commanded respect. Uh, and that's not necessarily a good guy to be leading your team. When like the figureheads of your team are guys like Paul Horning guys, like, you know, Max McGee, kind of party yeah. boys, you know, playboys. I mean, every, there's so many stories about those two. You could do in a whole episode just on that if you wanted. That'd be like an X-rated episode. But, <laughs> you know, he'd play poker with these guys. He'd owe them money, which Oof. is probably not a good place to be if you're oh commanding God. guys to, to do their jobs. Uh, they really lacked discipline. They were a mess on the field. And I I think my biggest takeaway looking at the 50s Packers, like we just talked about it, talent everywhere. I mean, coaching, uh, talent's everywhere on this field, right? When you, when you look at these, but there's not a lot of wins. They're missing a vital piece, and that's the, that's the coach. That's the culture that you're trying to build. They had no culture. They had a losing culture, even with all these Hall of Famers that are on the team. And I hear it every year. Who won the draft? Who won the draft? And I feel like every year we hype up the same teams, like the Chargers won the draft. Yeah. And every damn year they go seven and nine. <laughs> because they don't think sometimes that, like, you can draft a bunch of guys that, you know, are are uber talented or, like, great at their positions but if you never think about like the way of building a team and building a winning mindset like you're never right. gonna you're never gonna get there and like you know i i think it's more extreme or was more extreme in the 50s i mean i don't think you know i don't think brandon staley was out playing poker with the boys or anything like that right but it does kind of teach you a lesson that you know leadership still matters in a game that we care so much about who runs the fast 40 in their underwear. Right. And we're so data driven now with the way we look at things, but these are, you're still leading a group of men into an organized event. And if they're not led to do things the right way all the time, they're going to lose. So Lombardi's whole philosophy is the perfect fit. You have talent all over the field. And what you really need 
is this basically a West Point instructor to come in and teach discipline. His whole philosophy is centered around teamwork, perseverance, work ethic, like I said, discipline. He wants all his players to just execute the simple things all the time and do them perfectly, even though you're never going to, I mean, he'd always say, you're not going to ever get to perfection, but if you keep chasing perfection, you'll find excellence. And that was kind of his whole philosophy. And, you know, that would, you know, that the Packer sweep, I think is like the, the number one example of this philosophy where in the Packer sweep is basically the most famous play in football history where outside of like, well, I guess the T formation is more of a formation, but like, yeah, the actual, system. yeah, the play itself is the Packer sweep. You know, he moved actually Paul Horning, who was a quarterback in Notre Dame. He moved him to halfback. And then the center, it was usually Jim Ringo or later on, it was Bill Curry. You know, they had to cut the defensive tackle or the linebacker off from the play, which is a really hard block to make. Um, cause you know, ask any in, in, inside offensive line, you know, that's not an easy, easy job to do to cut them out of a play, uh, completely. giving up your body. Yeah. I mean, basically every single time that has to suck, uh, the guard on the near side of the play would have to vacate his gap and pull the, basically pull the lead ball carrier. And then on the far side would have kind of, I would say not the most difficult block like the center, but the far side guard would then have to pull the, you know, basically pull to act as a lead blocker for the halfback. So that cre- basically it's a play that is, it's not super complicated, but it takes execution at a perfect level and it takes a lot of rhythm and you just have to do it over and over and over. And that's what Lombardi did. He just drilled this play constantly in practice. They ran this play so much teams knew it was coming. Like they would basically like they're going to run the sweep. Set it was guys. still effective. <laughs> yeah. It didn't matter. This team, this was this play was so effective. Think about it for the era that we're in. By the way, this is known as the dead ball era. Mm-hmm. Explosive plays weren't necessarily a normal thing. It's not like today's game. This play was estimated. They didn't keep the stats exactly, but most estimates say from 1959 to 1961 the Packers we've averaged eight yards per carry. Oh my God. (laughs) So this is just, and it's perfect for the era because you're just controlling the ball. You're moving it down the field consistently Mm -hmm. and you're milking the clock, which is in that era. That's what you were trying to do. Yeah. Team defenses couldn't stop this. And one of these things, the Packers sweep really made me think about it because Think about it. Like we make fun of Matt Nagy, right? For his play sheet. How transferable is Lombardi's philosophy where like he comes in and he's not running that many plays, but it's more about how well you execute the few plays that you have. How would that work well in today's game where guys are more known for having these elaborate schemes and, what is the quote that I always hate hearing? He was a great football. He's a great football mind. Yeah. (laughs) Like, like we're some, like these guys are scientists or something drawing up plays. 
Yeah, it's um, it's hard to say because even like on a high school level, um, like teams still have, you know, a, a couple hundred plays at their disposal, and they're calling plays from the line of scrimmage. Um, it's it's uh, the idea of only having a handful of plays in any, unless it's youth football, but it, it you know. Even back then, it was probably not that common to, you know, I'm sure teams had more than, you know, I, I'm sure Green Bay still had the smallest playbook in the NFL, even then. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to necessarily, and I don't want to necessarily, you know, make Lombardi seem like he ran like five plays. No, but, no. But I, yeah. yeah, they the, had the, a, the, a much small, a much more condensed yeah. um, set that they were looking at. So he went, I think, Scooter McLean, I think they said, like, had a playbook that was, like, five inches thick, right? And I, I think uh, the book, When Pride Still Mattered by David Marinus, I think that's how you pronounce his last name. So Scooter McLean apparently had a five-inch playbook. And Lombardi's was, like, maybe an inch and a half thick mm-hmm. full of plays. And and. This is offense and defense, of course. Yeah. But the whole idea is the emphasis is on execution and and making every play you do excellent instead of focusing in on how many things can we confuse a defense or a confuse an offense with. And it made me think a lot about like the Dom Capers era with the Packers, like where they were blitzing so much in like the 2011 season, their defense was so bad where I feel like there were so many broken plays because guys weren't where they should be all the time. And like, well, yeah, cause you're running this crazy scheme. Yeah. Meanwhile, lovey Smith never really ever had a bad defense with Chicago and they're running Tampa two every play. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's true. Yeah. They had the dogs to do it. Yeah. It's about players. It's about finding the players that will execute every single time. And and football at its core is a game of leverage. It's a game of pad level. And God, I sound like such a meathead for saying that, I, but it's true. <laughs> it's true. And I I think Lombardi obviously would have to evolve a little bit more with the, the past game, like because he's yeah. not he wouldn't be coaching in the dead ball era. But I mean the core philosophy is still the same. Like if you can, if, if your team, if the 11 guys you have on the field can all execute and do their job well, and you can teach that to it at its core, you're going to win. Yeah. And I think the guy that looks like Lombardi in today's game, which I guess he's no longer in today's game is Bill Belichick. That, yeah, like, that's who thing. I think of. Uh, but Lombardi had success, obviously, in Green Bay. Breaking news. <laughs> Nine seasons in Green Bay. 89, 29, and four. Oh, my God. That's a Holy 70 0.754 win percentage, which is the greatest of all time from a coach that appeared in over 100 games. Nine and one in the postseason. Oh, that's never going to happen again, by the way. No, no one's ever going to do that. Oh, who, who was our one loss to the 1960 Eagles in the championship game? 
Oh, so the first one, the first yeah. playoff game he was in, basically. Yeah, he went 9-0 and to finish his playoff career. Oh, yeah, he made up for that. <laughs> I think he told his team that. I think he told his team after the game, we're never going to lose again. And then he was right. Yeah. He didn't. He nailed that. He was, the dude was a boss and I, people respected the man. Like he just, what he said came true. I think a lot of people resented him because he was kind of a hard ass, but look at the, look at the fucking results. Yeah. They're there. I mean, you're never going to see nine and one from any coach ever. Bill Belichick doesn't touch that. Didn't I mean, you tell me that there's only like one other coach? Uh, oh no, no, it was active coaches. That's right. Yeah. But it was it was Zach Taylor and like yeah. who's the that who's the weirdest person to include yeah. in, in the stat that Vince Lombardi yeah. might be. Part of. Well, so Lombardi's in the 900 club, right? So the yeah. 900 club is the. Uh, there's nobody else in that club, right? No. No, Lombardi's by far. I wouldn't even best. say if there's anybody in the eight, maybe not even Chuck Knoll. I don't think Chuck Knoll's not in the 800 club oh. and the 700 club, which is also, I think, a Christian talk show. Um, the 700 <laughs> club yeah. is. I believe. Zach Taylor, Kyle Shanahan's in it now. Oh, is he? And For Bill now? Belichick. I'd have to do the math, but I think <laughs> Kyle Shanahan, since he beat Green Bay and Detroit just oh, in the last yeah. couple of games, might... I think is yeah, Kyle Shanahan's had a lot of postseason success. And we can do this next episode when we're talking more about Hall of Fame. But I mean, if Kyle wins the Super That's Bowl. That's a preview for next week, everybody. Yeah. Kyle Shanahan, if he wins the Super Bowl, which we will know the answer to next Tuesday. Yep. I mean I think he might have, he might get, he's starting to get close to where he's going to be in that conversation if he just decided to retire like after the Super Bowl or something. Yeah. I think he might have enough of an argument because he's been that dominant in the postseason. Like you don't see that level of success plus the Super Bowl. But the point being, Lombardi really untouchable. And it almost gives him this like mythological lore. Like, in January, I guess back then it was December. Was most of the postseason was in December, but in December football, like you didn't beat the Packers in the sixties, yeah. you just didn't. Like, uh, so they they beat the Giants in sixty one and sixty two. They beat the Browns in sixty five to win the pre Super Bowl NFL championships, and still counts. We're, we're gonna we're gonna set the the record straight right now for everybody that listens. A pre-merger NFL or AFL championship yeah. counts just as much as a Super Bowl on yes. this podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. So don't don't kind of back at us like, well, they only won four or he only won two Super Bowls. Shut the hell up. No. You, and, and by the way, and like especially when it comes to Lombardi, they they win in 66 and 67. They beat Dallas in the in the NFL championship. They beat the shit out of Kansas City and Oklahoma or in Oakland. They yeah. beat the shit out of them. I said Oklahoma. They beat the shit out of Kansas City and Oakland in the first two Super Bowls. They declared themselves in that game. They were the most dominant team in pro football in the 1960s. There was no yeah. better team. 
and they there's nobody did else it. on the mountaintop with them. They won five championships in seven seasons. Like, I don't think that'll ever be. I don't think that'll ever be matched. No, in, in the game ever again. Like that's Boston Celtics level success. Like with when they had like Red Auerbach, nineties uh, Bulls. Yeah, nineties Bulls. That's a good example because I think what did they win six and eight? Six and eight years. Yeah, and honestly, they probably would have won six. They probably would have. They probably would have won eight and eight years if Jordan didn't leave. Yeah, that's a big what if though because does Jordan and all the does Jordan break down? Uh, if he true. plays yeah. another he two probably needed seasons. the break. And the last thing I'll say about the Packers is there was enormous amount of pressure on the Packers to win those Super Bowls. Like that was not a a win win proposition for them. If they lose, the NFL is basically embarrassed. So they have to go out and like the pressure's all on them, and the AFL is kind of in a proving ground, right? Like they they have everything to gain. I don't think the Packers had anything to gain from playing those Super Bowls. They had everything to lose. Well, even um, to go back to what we were talking about earlier when we mentioned in 1969 how the Jets won the Super Bowl over the the, the Colts, it, you know, it, it kind of goes to show you that as soon as the Lombardi Packers run was over, like it got, it was pretty evident that the AFL was not that far behind the NFL. Yes. So, like, you know, it's not like they were like when when the Packers were winning those two Super Bowls, it was like, yeah, but they're beating minor league teams. Essentially, it was what people thought, you know, yep. like they were second class citizens. Well, the, the next two seasons, the Super Bowl is won by AFL teams. Yep. So clearly Green Bay, like those Lombardi Packers were that far ahead of not just the AFL, but the NFL as well. They were in a league of their own. In the 1960s. Truly. So. I, the other thing about Lombardi that I think, you know, we can say this about some of the best coaches of all time. Like we can say it about Belichick. We can say it about Bill Walsh, Jimmy Johnson. Uh, and then I would, he's not one of the best coaches of all times, but these dynasties, they're actually Chuck Noll with the Steelers. They're, they're brought up from the ashes. So they come in, they completely revamp their entire organization from a losing culture and a losing franchise to one that dominates the league. And he's kind of the first, I would say like semi-modern because the modern era in football is not considered until after the merger, Mm -hmm. but he's kind of, he's kind of setting the blueprint for For how how we, how we, how how it's done and how we look at dynasties you know now uh we might get one with the chiefs so we might be able to add one uh to that list um his the other thing the other legacy lombardi has is he probably keeps the team in, in green bay itself cuz they were so bad in the 50s there was financial concern around them there were owners around the league that were so concerned about the sustainability of the Packers. They were in, you know, they were such a poor team. Uh, They didn't have a traditional ownership structure. I think if he doesn't come and revive that situation to at least become competitive, 
the Packers probably don't exist. We're not and, here today. <laughs> yeah, they're they're not. Yeah, I'm not a I'm not a Packers fan. I'm probably who knows because like it, it, you can't you, even yeah. write you can't even write that, football history without the Packers can. of the 1960s. No, like they're such a foundational part of the game's history. That's like saying, you know, that's like saying to a fan. Uh, uh, to, that's like saying, you know, what would football be like without the 80s 49ers? Well, I mean. The game grew yeah, up in popularity because they were exactly. so fun. Like <laughs> right. they were. A- yeah, it, it's it's impossible to even quantify the the changes that would have happened had that not occurred, had that team not been there. Yeah, I mean, it got to the point though in the fifties. It was so bad. I mean, you had you had guys around the league, including George, George Hallis, who were concerned. They, they all, I think they were almost pushing to get Lombardi to green Bay or somebody that could or kind of maintain some credibility some type of cultural. Yeah. Get bring credibility back to the league because I think green Bay was almost bringing them down. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, they were starting like, you know, the first 20, 30 years, of the league it was they were a barnstorming league like it was it was not uncommon for kind of a small industrial town well not a small industrial town but an industrial town not some big much metropolitan to have a football team but as they were getting towards the mid to late 50s the early 60s like that that you know the portsmouth spartans you know Portsmouth couldn't support a football team. Canton couldn't support an NFL team. No. Uh, Rochester couldn't support an NFL team. And so Green Bay was looking like, I don't know about these guys. Yeah. I mean, Green Bay is really the last kind of um, the last piece of history or the, I guess the, the last sign of the old NFL Yeah, where these small industrial towns in the Midwest, like you mentioned. I mean, what is it? Hell, Decatur? The, Bear, the Bears got out of Decatur after the second year. Yeah. <laughs> like they, they knew that they had to go to Chicago if they wanted to survive. Yeah, you, you had the Green Bay is basically the last sign of the old NFL. And mm-hmm. it's kind of a weird story because they were able to survive, but it's because these kind of fluky things happen. And one of those fluky things to happen is landing arguably the greatest coach of all time and having him almost fall in your lap when you need yeah. it most. Because, like, you know, the Packers were winning championships in the 30s. Like, they were fine. Yeah. But by the 1950s, the game had evolved past, you know, where it was in the 30s, where it was kind of the secondary game. Like, the college game was considered superior to the pro game at that yeah. point. And by the fifties, that was changing and you had to evolve or die. And, you know, you look around American economics with small businesses, most die. Yeah. Like the, the big market's going to win almost every time. Yeah. The bigger company's going to win. And this small team didn't. And I think Vince Lombardi's greatness was probably the only thing that really saved them from that and then it took another fluke thing happening in the 90s for green bay to save itself again <laughs> and that could be in its own episode too because yeah brett Favre and mike holmgren show up in green bay that completely 
kind of there, brought them. There's from a the point I want I want to make about that later too, but we'll we'll get to that part. Yeah, uh, but despite Lombardi's great success, there's a lot of burden in this. So, you know, Lombardi's career was actually short, and it started late. Um, the man himself, he was almost obsessively competitive to a point where I think he hated losing more than he enjoyed winning. And he, he was almost unhealthy about it. And yeah, you know, I think that could have led to some health problems later in life. Um, he did take over as coach in 59 at age 45. So that's really late already. Um, so by the 1968 season, which was, I guess his last year in green Bay as GM, his last season in Green Bay as coach was 1967. He was in his mid fifties already, which was pretty late in your career at that point. Like you weren't seeing so many guys coach into their seventies. Like I think Hallis had retired, and I think was in his maybe early sixties, mid sixties. Um, uh, he was born in 1898, so he would have he would have been in his mid sixties. Yeah, yeah, and that was but he was he had already and he had retired already. <laughs> Yeah, and then came out of retirement to coach again. Yeah, and he also he missed time because he went to he went to fight uh, on the Pacific Front too. Yeah, so you had those type of situations where. Could you imagine, like, <laughs> like Kyle Shanahan next year? They're like, actually, he's gonna go to Israel and, and help. <laughs> Yeah, let's ho- let's like, pray to God that doesn't. Yeah. No, yeah, we would have, but like a coach leaving in the middle of the season to go or not in the. I don't think it was in the yeah. middle of the season, but like to go to war. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you had that all. I mean, Ted Williams, who was yeah. the biggest star in sports, yeah. had to Ted serve. Williams, I mean, uh, and, and I mean that gives you perspective though, because like the conflicts at the time was bigger than any they were bigger phenomenon. than sports yeah yeah it was bigger than anything cultural you, you in needed the United your States. best men over yeah. there yeah you had something to there was there was such a power in the world that we had to eradicate with the nazis that it took everything we had as a country and and i think it showed i i think like world war ii brought a culture that kind of lingered past uh, and almost into the 60s, and it kind of changed into the 60s. Yeah. But Lombardi was kind of that, you know, he didn't serve, I, I think, or anything. Like He wasn't an officer. He did, I mean, he was at West Point as a coach, but that kind of military attitude to sports, and that was very common back then, but, like, everything was more focused on discipline and, you know, just doing your job because that's critical in a military setting. You know, you don't want guys going rogue. Uh, when it comes to fighting wars and you know, even Teddy Roosevelt back when he saved the game, when they were first trying to outlaw it, like he said that football at its core was a way for young men to l- kind of learn team building and to kind of train themselves for combat, which, you know, I think in the 1950s, that viewpoint was probably a little bit more accepted i don't think people look at the game at all like that now and i'm not saying they should yeah Uh, but that's kind of the way it was and lombardi was in a kind of a period between that philosophy and where we are now uh but he he ends up stepping down from the head coaching spot in 1968 and gives the uh job to phil bingston his longtime defensive coordinator continues the role as gm uh through 1968 
But the Packers slide. So they go from winning Super Bowl two, you know, finishing off a dynasty to a losing record. They're six, seven, and one. Uh, I think that had a lot to do with Lombardi leaving. Um, I think you have eight Hall of Famers that were drafted more than that because, I mean, you had some players drafted later like Herb Adderley. So you have, you know, nearly a dozen Hall of Fame players. You have a team that's aging, basically. These guys that were drafted in the 50s, like they're all getting up there in age and guys didn't play as long back then. Yeah, and and they they had rough training training camps with uh, Lombardi and they were playing late in the year all the time. So So in like in the 50s, for example, like, you know, we talk about the 58 draft. Those guys were, what, 22, 23 when they get drafted? You know, yeah. in 1968, they're 10 years in to the, they're, I mean, these guys are tw- 33, 34 years old by then. They obviously, you know, I think they lost something with Jack Venisi. When he, when he died, I think the ability to bring in top-end players, you know, it didn't go away. Lombardi obviously had an eye for talent. But you weren't bringing in Hall of Famers like they like the 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 1958 class was never going to happen again. Like they hit the yeah. jackpot. You're not going to hit that twice. So I think the the team was getting worse naturally. It wasn't supposed to stay that good forever. But you know some other things happened. Um, his wife was struggling. Um, his yeah. kids were grown. He's an he's a man of the East Coast, and his wife was, and I think they wanted to go back. Uh, and I think that was one of the main reasons, and there are some other reasons, because mm-hmm. money always plays a factor. Yeah. Uh, so he goes to the Redskins. So the Redskins through the 1960s, just like the 50s Packers, one of the worst teams in the NFL. They're one of the most underwhelming teams of the decade. Their last winning record, so... We're placing ourselves in 1969 now, right? Their last winning record was in 1955. Oof. So that's... <laughs> that's even that's worse 14, than Green Bay four, was. <laughs> 14 lo- straight losing seasons. Like, in today's league, who's come close to that many in, in a row? Uh, was Detroit? No, no, but Detroit. Not... Detroit. He made the playoffs in the late '90s and then got back in 2011. Yeah, which I mean, it was some barren years, but uh, and Cleveland, even yeah, Cleveland made a playoffs. They made the playoffs in 02. They were. I think 10 it was six and 07. Oh no, they went. Yeah, they went ten and six in 07, and, and then, then they, they didn't back. have a winning record. Oh, maybe it might have been Cleveland. They didn't have it until 2020. Yeah, but they didn't even so, go 14. Or they, they didn't go as long. I I guess it was the same amount. So so just about yeah, or a year less. But it shows you this team was basically the Browns. Yeah. Like they they had a lot of uh, a lot of dysfunction. They had a racist owner up until Lombardi got there. Uh, was it George Preston Marshall? I don't have it written yes. down. Yeah, yeah. But they had a lot of dysfunction. Um, they were kind of the laughing stock of the league. And I think there was some pressure from the league. Like they wanted to be relevant in the nation's capital. You had a president in office by that point that took a great interest in sports. Nixon cared a lot about going to football games. He loved providing his opinion on the game. And the Redskins were obviously going to be 
a topic of conversation with the powerful people in Washington. I think Roselle cared about that. Yeah, I, I never even kind of thought about that connection, but it, considering the tumultuous time of that the country yeah. was in at that point, like they yeah. you could see why they would want the Redskins to be good. So I think there was a lot of pressure from powerful people, and I think Roselle was happy to see Lombardi go to the Redskins, which is I think he helped make it easier for him to get out of his contract with the Packers. Uh, not that the Packers necessarily made it difficult for him to leave. I think, yeah, I think they were grateful enough for what he had done and understood that, you know, there were some other issues like family issues in terms of Lombardi wanting to go back to the East coast. Um, but his, his you know, the other thing is his tenure in Green Bay, Green Bay felt kind of short and it, and it's kind of crazy how how similar it was to Mike Mike Holmgren's, because Mike Holmgren was only there for less than a decade, but kind of went through the same not a not to the as great of a degree, but the '90s Packers went from kind of a laughing stock in the '80s, like they weren't relevant, and t- and then they get Favre and Holmgren, and then they're winning a Super Bowl in '96. Yeah, so. You know, a very similar turnaround, and but it, it wears off quickly. I guess I think the town itself, and maybe the environment of Green Bay, where it's only about football all the time, wears on people. Uh, so maybe that's why they can't necessarily maintain coaches. But like the more I thought about it, I should know this off the top of my head. But I guess Mike McCarthy is he the longest tenured coach in team history outside of I guess Curly Cur- Lambeau. Curly Lambeau, you yeah. would think. Like in the um, modern era of football, where like oh guys yeah, didn't certainly. just coach teams for twenty years, like George Hallis did, or something. Now, like now that. Green Bay, um, like they weren't quick to move off of. Honestly, the only coach they were quick to move off of was Ray Rhodes, um, yeah. and uh, but like I mean, Bart Starr was there probably long after he should have been gone. Um, Forrest Gregg stayed on probably a little bit too long, um. Lindy Infante would have been the next coach. Yeah, I think so. And then they had a couple in there. They had Bart Starr was there for about eight, nine years. Lindy Infante was, yeah, four. He was a late 80s, wasn't he? Who? Infante. Infante was like mid to late 80s. Forrest Gregg was like the early 80s. No, Forrest Gregg was mid 80s. Because he was in Cincinnati. Yeah, Bart Starr was late 70s or early 80s. So, uh, and Star, you know, that kind of hurt his reputation, and that that's one of the, kind oh, of the tragic, yeah, tragic events of him being a coach is like there was some animosity towards him from the fan base at that time, which sucks because Bart Starr is such a legendary quarterback, and from what all accounts, a legendary person, uh, you know, and it always kind of sucks that like something like that didn't work out, but that's the risk that being a coach. You know, ends up taking there's a lot of pressure to win even in a small market like that uh, the other th- you brought up the 99 season i know this is off like completely off topic but you know what sucks in history about that though specifically about the 99 packers is they hire ray Rhodes. you know do you know who they really passed on would have been belichick i think it was andy reed that they passed on yeah, because he would have ended up in 
Because I think Andy Reid went to Philly in 99. Philly, yeah. That was his first season. And if you were going to move off Mike Holmgren after you the 98 somebody season, waiting. you literally had a guy on the staff that was ready to go. Who would have been so good he was with your assi- Yeah, he was your assistant head coach in 98. Is, like, is Andy Reid going for his ninth Super Bowl as Packers coach if he did <laughs> on <yeah>. Sunday? <laughs> I mean... Andy Reid, that's probably Ron Wolf's worst moment as GM of the Packers. And I think that's why he moved so quickly off of Ray Rhodes. I think he realized what he had done, and he made a mistake. But then the mistakes, you know, compounded because once he leaves, Mike Sherman becomes the GM, and then, like, God, that was awful. Like, Mike Sherman, good coach. Terrible GM, but back on topic because I want to stay on Lombardi going to the Redskins. Yeah, um, he wanted a new challenge. He had won five championships in his nine seasons with the Packers. Um, so I think he wanted to kind of turn it around, but obviously the elephant in the room. There's a less romantic angle to this, and you're naive if you don't think this is an angle. <laughs> I mean, it's financial, like. He yeah. was going to ben- benefit financially. And I don't blame him for that, by the way. Yeah. Uh, Go get your bag, as I say. Yeah. Oh, God, I hate that phrase so much. <laughs> and he's going to get the bag. And I'm like, what is the... what? Uh, <laughs> Who's bag? <laughs> Who's bag? Like, because when you take a bag of money, it's like you're robbing the bank. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway. So. <laughs> but uh, the less romantic angle of that is that it was simply a financial decision for him to leave Green Bay for the Redskins. His contract prevented him from coaching another team until after the 1973 uh, season, but the Redskins were able to offer him something the Packers couldn't, and that was 5% equity of the team. Green Bay is, you know, you can buy stock in the team, but it's essentially it's worthless stock. It, yeah. You can't sell it. It doesn't pay a dividend. Because it's a nonprofit organization, it's basically a fundraising arm for the team. It's the fans. <laughs> the fans want to pay for a piece of paper to keep the Packers competitive. Now, I think it's charming. I think it's cool. Yeah. It's and as long as they're not raising taxes on the people there that don't care about football, I'm all for that model. I wish yeah. that was more common across all professional sports. Because the one thing I can't stand reading is when some guy worth $200 billion or not that much, but like a guy worth $50 billion. Yeah. Yeah. Wants you to pay more of your property. He 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 wants wants to know, will the the school district give up some, some of the money for his his new stadium? Yeah. Like I don't like if I lived in Mecklenburg County and, and that's Charlotte and I saw David Tepper wanted to like, take a portion of my already high property taxes and pour it into bank of America stadium 2.0. Like, yeah, you go F yourself, dude, go F yourself. Like, because am I getting a piece of the Panthers or or is the city of Charlotte getting that? And they're like, no, what we're going to be able to do is bring concerts to the area. (laughs) My ass. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I could give a crap at least with, at least with this model, I like it because it's ultimately like the fans that care about it, they pay for it. Yeah. 
but uh, the the Redskins are able to do something the Packers can't. That's give equity in the team. He also got a a pretty nice salary from the from the Redskins, and uh, you know, like I said earlier, the Packers don't necessarily put up a huge fight. I think it was just time to move on for everybody. Packers kind of go into a depression after that, and they're not relevant for twenty years. Um. So in '69, so we're at the present day now. Lombardi immediately turns them around, breaking news. In his first season, seven five and two, which is very close to his seven and five record in 1958 with the Packers. Oh wow! That's so eerie. he comes in. He comes in immediately. Wins. Uh, has a winning season, and so immediately turns around. They have a, a a culture that they're building. You know, this team went five and eight under autogram in '68. Uh, that was a 14 year sh- losing streak or a losing season streak that they had. He he comes in, wipes the slate clean. Everybody's excited about this 1970 team. Uh, Sonny Jurgensen he continued his path forward. Underrated career, by the way. Um, yeah. Kind of sad that he played on so many crap teams uh, for the first part of his career. Uh, but he was one of the best pure passers of the dead ball era. Mm-hmm. And the note I want to share with you on the, the 1969 Redskins is, yeah, they lost five games. They lost all five games to teams with winning records. But these teams weren't just teams with winning records. They lost to the Colts, who were in their final year with Shula. So they he lost to John Don Shula with Johnny Unitas at quarterback. Not bad. That team won the Super Bowl the following season. Yeah, they did. Uh, with Eubank. The Cowboys won the Capital, a capital Division. They actually played them twice uh, and lost twice. Okay. Cowboys went 11 and 2, or 11 2 and 1 under Tom Landry. And they won the newly formed NFC the following season and they lost to the Colts in Super Bowl 5. The Browns lost to the uh lost in the last NFL championship game ever played. Who did they lose to? In 69. Yes. They would have lost to the Vikings. The Vikings did win a championship. <laughs> they did. Hey, on the Old Souls Football Podcast, NFL well, hold, championships wait, hold count. On, wait, hold on. That's like an NFC championship, though, because after the Super Bowl. <laughs> I, I did. Yeah, because once the Super Bowl happened, like everybody's kind of like, well, wait a second. Now, that's always an interesting debate because like a Vikings fan would probably tell you, well, I mean, we did win the 69 championship. <laughs> well, that's not a very good Minnesota accent. Uh, yeah, we did win this. I, I, I wait. I. I would have yeah. to think about how I want to make it. Oh, geez. Oh, geez. I did win the 1969 championship. You you basically got to sound like the people in Fargo. Yeah. <laughs> I love in like Fargo, like committing murders and like you just hear like, oh, geez. Oh, geez. Oh, no. Oh, geez. Oh, red. Oh, red. Great. I love that movie. <laughs> have you seen the show? I one time I was like flipping through the channels and I just happened upon it and it, it was it was a really interesting episode, but like I had no idea about the context of anything. So, yeah, um, it's on Hulu. It's it's pretty good. I I highly I, recommend I, it. 
my wife does have that. I might try it sometime. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and then the Rams were the last team. So the Browns lost the NFL championship and the Rams, they won the coastal division and uh, won the playoff bowl, which was actually the third oh, place yeah. game. Um, yeah. Little... And Lombardi, um, didn't he decline playing in that one time? Or I did they? Did. Or, yeah, I think they, or maybe he did, but he was so pissed off about it or something. Yeah, I can't remember, honestly. Yeah, um, something similar to that. I don't know. But 1970 looked promising for the Redskins. But unfortunately, it wasn't meant to be. Lombardi dies in the summer of 1970. He had health issues, he had health issues dating back to 67. Um, but in June of 1970, doctors discovered colon cancer. He passed away three months later, just two weeks before the NFL season kicks off. Mm. And the crazy thing about his death and like the timing of it is that was the first season where the old AFL and the old NFL merged into the new NFL, right? Like the, that yeah, was it was the like a passing of, of the torch almost. He literally dies two weeks before the merger. What we considered the merger. And the merger is like is considered kind of the modern era of football. Because mm. a lot of the times, like when you hear guys say, like, you know, since the merger, this is the stat. Yeah. When Lombardi passed, it was basically like pro football was completely changed. Yeah. Once he passed and like Lombardi was kind of the last figurehead of the old era. And like once he left the game, unfortunately he left the game when he had passed, you know, we obviously wished he would have been able to just retire and see the passing of the torch that way. But once he, once he left the game, the game started to change. Um, And that leads to some burning questions. And I I want you to kind of go into some detail because I know you've thought a lot about this. Yeah. So he dies at 57. Only only coached 10 seasons. So really not much of a sample size. No. A great great sample size, though. Best record or winning percentage of all time, uh, uh, basically. Postseason record that won't be touched. What happens if he coaches another 10? Um, assuming he's still with the Redskins, I do think now winning Super Bowls. See, now this is the hard part because, um, it sounds like, you know, some people are, oh, are you attacking a legend? I don't see it like that, but I don't see him maybe winning. Maybe he wins another Super Bowl. Maybe he wins two, but. The NFC at that time, or what was about to become the NFC just before he passed, um, or just after he passed, I should say, um, yeah. was very weak. Um, well, not very weak, but it was open. You know, the Cowboys were starting to get very good, so the, the Redskins were always going to be battling them in the East. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is when there was, it was the three divisions in one wild card, right? Yes. So, so he definitely could have gotten maybe a couple wild cards out of that, but like the Vikings were making Super Bowls. The Vikings made three Super Bowls after he passed in the seventies. Um, they took advantage of down years. Like the Rams were a very good team in the West, 
but they weren't Super Bowl. Actually, the year that they were kind of down, they ended up making it anyways late in the decade. I think he definitely does get there, but the problem is, I keep talking about the NFC, the AFC had some dogs in it. Um, the Arguably the three best teams of the decade. Now, the Cowboys would have a claim to this. Yes. But the three best teams of the decade were the Steelers, the Dolphins, and the Raiders. Yeah. And um, now, in 1972, the Redskins did make a Super Bowl, and they ran into the, the Dolphins. 72 Dolphins, yeah. Now, that would have been really interesting. Um, that, that would have really cemented something for Lombardi if he took down an undefeated team in the Super Bowl. Um, yeah. Now, but also they were favored. The NFC was favored that time. Do they cash in with Lombardi? Who's to know? Um, I don't see him beating any of the Steelers teams. Um, and he, I think it might, um, it, it's, it's very difficult to know. As we always say, it's just like we said, you know, what would have happened if green Bay wasn't there or if he didn't go to green Bay in 1959, what would have happened yeah. to the NFL? But um, I think we didn't see enough of, you know, the, the Packer sweep was, was so vital to what green Bay did. Um, I think we didn't see enough of, and, and maybe in, in years time, there's game footage that comes available, mm-hmm. but of his passing game, even though the, the seventies, if the sixties were the dead ball, the seventies was an incredibly awful time for offense in the NFL. He might have done well with a good running game, but he had Billy Kilmer at quarterback not long after Sonny Jurgensen left, um, or he would have had. And that wasn't, he wasn't a Super Bowl winning quarterback. Um, No, I think, I think speaking of Jurgensen, though, I think, I think he he stuck on. I think he stuck, I think he could have stuck on towards the end of his career. And I think we would have looked differently i mean he's still a pro football hall of famer so i mean yeah still a gold jacket player but i think he, you could look at him more like we look at you know somebody like roger staubach or something yeah. like that where like you win a championship and remember jurgensen was considered one of the best passers of his era so you start to look at him differently i think but the thing Jurgensen never had was he was never really a winner. And yeah, I think that that was missing from his resume. Um, I, I agree with you. The AFC was really the class of the seventies. Um, I mean, you had Miami obviously with Shula and the dolphins, Larry Zonka, Bob Greasy, those guys, uh, Mercury Morris, the no name defense, Pittsburgh speaks for itself. I mean, yes. Dynasty so curtain. The decade Oakland with Madden, uh, those teams, were, yeah, those teams were formidable. Uh, and then, I mean, Dallas was a machine. I mean, they literally called it the machine where they were one of the first franchises to kind of follow the Paul Brown method of building an organization out where they, they, had, they had a scouting system under Gil Brandt that basically mm-hmm. built one of the best rosters and the best and most sustainable levels of football. And that's why Landry was able to be so good for so long with the Cowboys yeah. where, so you're dealing with that. 
I think it's a way more competitive NFL for Lombardi. Yeah. Now, I think he competes in that. Yeah. I don't think he dominates it like he did with the Packers. And I think the problem for him is you can only go down from where you were. Exactly. I don't think it's we look similar, at Lombardi. Yeah. yeah. It, it, he, we look at him kind of like what Belichick's going through. Yeah, right I now. was just about to say that. Yeah. Um, Belichick's the type of coach. If you take out the 2020, the 2022, and the 2023 seasons, and you just look at his resume with the one year he, he had a Mac Jones in 21, that was actually pretty good. If you'd look at Bill Belichick and his Patriots resume for a 20 year period, it's dominant. Mm. It, yeah. I mean, it speaks for itself six Super Bowls, but it's amazing how three four years can hurt your reputation he didn't even get a job yeah in this hiring cycle and people are gonna knock him for that we we saw with george seifert won two super bowls with the 49ers his reputation was ruined when he after he went to carolina and he's not in the hall of fame yeah how how is george seifert not in the hall of fame (laughs) he had some of the most dominant teams of all time he did. He was part of the Niners machine. And, and but he, all because he, still, he had Chris Winkie at quarterback. Mike Shanahan is an offensive coordinator who grew the Shanahan tree. Um, the Shanahan tree started technically post Bill Walsh, San Francisco. You can't have Mike Shanahan and all of these offensive geniuses that have come without the success of George Seifert. Yeah. That's he's one of the co- we could go into this next week where we have yeah. all these guys that have been left out, but yeah, uh, I left out of Hall of Fame discussions. But like George Seifert's one of them, but I don't think we look at Lombardi the same way. Where I think I, his best I, chance would have been the early 70s, but by the mid 70s, it would have been yeah, too far Pitts- gone. Yeah, Pittsburgh and Oakland, especially, were just so full of talent. Yeah, at that point where I think it's just it would have been too much. I, and I it was even... a it was a meaner league too. You know, like not not that Lombardi's teams weren't tough, but I don't know if they, like the things that like well that yeah Pittsburgh they're not did, it wasn't a dirty league. It was, they yeah he wasn't yeah. dirty. I I can't imagine like Lombardi had Atkins. You you didn't have like you know Willie Wood wasn't out there, you know throwing his. You know, elbow into a guy's throat. Lombardi like wasn't the watering the field at nighttime so that it would freeze. Yeah, you know those kind of, or or watering uh the field in sunny Oakland as if it poured rain for two yeah. weeks on end. Like that wasn't an un, you know, and that's that's fun. That's gamesmanship. I I yeah. do appreciate those stories, but that wasn't Lombardi. And I think I think he might have even seen himself, um. Uh, you know, kind of drifting away from the yeah. rest of the, con- you know, the community of coaches at that time. And he might've just even himself said, yeah, this isn't my, my cup of tea anymore. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, and I think the other thing that kind of states our case on that is if you actually look at the coaching tree that he had, um, one of the things that he doesn't really have is none of his assistants were really great head coaches. And that's a sign mm-hmm. that, I think his approach doesn't necessarily age 
well yes with the seven not replicated it didn't no one was able to replicate it and i think that shows the number one the mastery of what he was able to do when in green bay with the persona the leadership um just the cultural impact he had on one team i think that speaks for itself in terms of i mean he should be a considered like the Mount Rushmore of coaches. Like he's up there with he like he's one of the first you think of. The trophy's named after him for God's sake. But you look at his coaching tree, it's not great. Bill Austin from 66 to 68 with the Steelers. The Steelers were terrible. He had uh and then he coached the Redskins in 1970. It was quickly let go. They hired George Allen. Norm Hecker with the Falcons. The Falcons were not competitive in the 1960s. Tom Fears with the Saints in the 60s, same thing, which in a way, I don't know if that's super fair to those two guys because yeah, they were joining expansion teams and expansion teams back then. It wasn't fair. Like they, you can't build scrap peep guys. Yeah. In the nineties, you had Dom Dom Capers and Tom Coughlin leading expansion teams two years in to championship games. That wasn't going to happen in the sixties. Forrest Gregg actually did have some success with the Bengals, but with the Browns and the Packers, he didn't see much. And then Bart Starr, we mentioned earlier, his coaching career busted. So really Lombardi's Lombardi's tree was not awesome. No. Uh, and it shows you his approach and his um I guess his style doesn't it didn't necessarily translate as the game evolved into the 70s. Uh, how do we remember him? I mean, do do we declare him the greatest coach of all time? Is my first question. Um, I don't think you can. I th- I don't think it's out of the question, yeah. but I think it's a debate. It's yeah, it definitely the 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 debate door does open if um he does coach for a few more years. Um, part of what made Lombardi so, um, uh, there was, well, there was a, literally a thing called the Lombardi mystique, you know, like everybody yeah. can think of that one NFL film. Um, like it was Lombardi. an episode, Lombardi, John Facenda Lombardi. There's a certain magic even in the name or something like that, you know, like, but like, it was true. Like. Um, we didn't see, you know, really like Lombardi is almost like a Paul Bunyan figure in some way. Like you just hear like tales about him and you see like little clips of his, you know, what the hell's going on out there? Like, you know, yeah. on the sideline and, and things like that. Um, he, he was a pre, he truly was a pre-modern era coach. And, um, he was, you know, for us, he was just at the time that our grandparents were getting into football. Maybe our parents, um, you know, or, or aunts and uncles were watching football for the first time. And, but they were little kids when they were doing that. It's not like they were teenagers or, you know, yeah. um, you know, for some of our listeners, they might've been younger kids. So uh, he, he was like, it was like a kind of, he was a folk hero is truly what he was. If he continues to coach, it, you know, it's almost a blessing in one way that he didn't, because who knows if we would have remembered him like this. And as we said, he had more to lose than to gain. 
um, at that point. I agree with you. I think with Lombardi, it's like I, I thought about this. It's you can't really go find a like live TV clip of him, like you know, a broadcast TV clip, right? Yeah. You try and go back and watch like Super Bowl one. Like everybody's looking for that tape. They, um, they do say there is one guy that has like the NBC tape, but a, apparently you just can't find it. So <laughs> these these games from like the, they were filmed because you know Steve and Ed Sable with NFL Films were able to start in the 60s like so they have clips of these games but yeah. they're cinematic yeah they 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 feel more like a hollywood movie than they do you watching a game and you remember oh i remember watching that game on tv you don't remember lombardi it feels like from years gone by like you're watching old war clips yeah or and like it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it was the 1960s <laughs> yeah it it feels older and i think it sort of gives you this like you're going you're going into a time capsule and that all changed right after he dies like in 1970 with the merger tv i mean i even mentioned the moon landing for a reason live television changed basically right as lombardi got to the redskins and, and very soon after he died where live tv takes over the sports landscape it becomes really the best programming any net like and yeah. and look at it today it is the monday night football piece. started that the same year right yeah monday yeah monday night football started television completely changes the sport and lombardi's not there for that he just missed out on that so his legacy ends right as the game changed so he feels from a like a a previous era altogether, but he was so close to actually being able to coach again. Like he could have easily been coaching against the 72 dolphins. He could have easily been coaching against Tom Landry. If he coaches another is what age did he die? It was like 58. I said, I think. Yeah. 57, 58 around there. He's a young man. If he coaches 10 more seasons, let's say he coaches into his late sixties, which we see all the time now. Like that's about retirement. Belichick's like 72, 73 now. I think Matt um, Eberflus is 57 himself right now. Yeah. And he's a new coach. <laughs> yeah. So you have all of these guys, like if all these guys coaching late into their life now, but that wasn't normal back then. But let's say Lombardi coaches another 10 seasons. That would get him to 1980. In 1980, Montana's in the league at yeah. that point. Like, Montana played up until what, like ninety four, I think. Yeah, ninety five, maybe. So like, yeah, you have... you're, you're starting to do the thing, like, where wait, he coached this guy who ended up playing with this guy who's played with this guy whose career ended in two thousand six or something yeah. like that. I mean, his 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 paths would have crossed with Dick Vermeil at that yeah. point. He would have coached like if he's coaching the Redskins in nineteen eighty. Dick Vermeil coaching would, the Eagles. He would Dick have Vermeil been coaching coaching. the two thousands. He would have been coaching across the sideline from Bill Belichick. Yeah. Because Belichick was was with the Colts in 1975. Yeah. And Belichick was on a sideline three weeks ago. Yeah. (laughs) On the flip side, it can end disastrously. Like, I think some some coaches we saw it, like Tom Landry, for example. Like, because you had the, what, the fedora hat. 
in like the mm-hmm. shadow of Texas Stadium. Like yeah. he had that aura. That was the seventies, man. That was fo- like NFC football in the seventies. You think of yeah. the purple Classy. leaders. Yeah. You think of the the like the, the and, doomsday and other, defense. Yeah, you think of all these like the you think of the Cowboys, right? Yeah. In the early nineties, the Cowboys sucked. And mm-hmm. that whole that all changed like Jerry Jones fired him. And then like his legacy like really got hurt by that. We just saw with Belichick. Sometimes these guys stay too long. And obviously, like it's it it was tragic that he died. In a way, his career in football ended at the perfect time. Yeah. You know, like e- even like all the times, like the last couple of years. Speaking of player wise, like when Brady won, like in in twenty twenty, and everybody was like, "Dude, just retire!" Like, dude, like you just that's your seventh man. Like, go out on top. Yeah. And he he went out on an eight and nine team. He lost a Monday night playoff game, which is a travesty. To, I to the Cowboys. They, to the Cowboys. So it, it it was like, you know, um, you hate uh, somebody else. It, it's nice when, in some ways there's some autonomy about when you get to leave. And even if Vince's autonomy wasn't, you know, it it might've been the the good Lord saying, all right, let's, let's, let's save you. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like I said, you don't want, you know, colon cancer to be the one dictating the end of his career and his life. Right. But I think the story of the 1960s, it begins and ends with Vince Lombardi. 100%. Thank you again for listening to the Old Souls Football Podcast. Next week, Neil and I dive into the Hall of Fame class. Who got snubbed? Who's getting in? We make a case for each player.